You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This is my second interview with the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. May is a peace builder, advocate, author, and speaker. She is the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace. Her work has been featured in a host of national and international outlets and publications, including the New York Times, CNN, and the Washington Post. In my first interview with May, we discussed her book, Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps to a Better World. In this episode, I am interviewing May on her latest book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. The reason I want to feature May's books and works is because she not only provides clear and compelling insights into current social justice issues, but she also includes excellent resources on each issue so that anyone who is interested in a specific issue can develop and deepen her or his understanding about that issue. Most significantly, May offers numerous avenues for one to become personally involved and engaged in advocacy and activism. I am honored, delighted, and thankful that she has so generously agreed to return for another interview. Welcome back, May. Thank you for being with me today. Good to be with you, David. Well, you have a new book out, and that's what we're planning on discussing today. Uh, came out in 2020, uh, so just this last year. Uh, Beyond Hashtag Activism, uh, Comprehensive Justice for a Complicated Age. Uh, so let's talk about the title a little bit, uh, because that obviously involves some sense of how social media is impacting social justice. So talk about that a little bit. That's right. Well, and even hearing you say the year 2020, I don't know how listeners feel, but I feel like there's some trauma associated with that year of the moment um, of all the things that were happening in our country from the political divisions and the racial divisions. So the book coming out in that moment, um, I think the subtitle speaks to it, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. In the middle of a pandemic, what a complicated age we live in and um, how challenging things have been from health perspectives to you know addressing issues of racial justice and the main title of the book beyond hashtag activism was really speaking to the movements that have been happening in the united states specifically but around the world of the role that social media plays in people using their voices to be advocates and to be activists related to certain issues. We saw this back in 2011 in Egypt, the role of social media media in the Egyptian revolution, January 25th, 2011. I was living in Jerusalem at the time and social media revolutionized the country. And then we saw this, you know, we'll have to look up dates and things in terms of when different social media movements started, but we saw this in terms of Black Lives Matter. The hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter, changed the way race was discussed certainly in the public square, certainly on social media, but beyond that, in cities around the country with racial, you know, protests on behalf of justice. And so 
My goal was to affirm the role that social media plays, hashtags in social media, but to encourage people that checking, you know, the little like button or the, now there's a little heart button, you know, in terms of caring on, on Facebook or on LinkedIn, that that's a great place to start. And social media movements have been incredibly powerful, but may that be a beginning of our activism, not the end of our activism. Okay. Um, well, and, and in your mind then, as we carry that forward, uh, what, what do they need to do more? Because uh, you speak of a, a sense of a comprehensive understanding. Sure. Yeah, I think all of us are called to be advocates of justice, regardless of our professional commitments, our vocations, regardless of, you know, whether or not we have children at home, or if we're single or married, or I think all of us are called to engage in responding uh, to the needs of the world. And in that regard, for us to be aware of what's happening, for us to be educated about injustices, for us to be informed about global issues, and not just informed by solitary media sources. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot in my work that relates to Middle East peace is that the only way to get a comprehensive picture of what's happening in the Middle East is to have multiple relationships from diverse perspectives to consult media sources that are not just Western, um, but media sources that have different agendas and different um, frameworks or ideologies to help us to try to really understand you know, a snapshot of reality. And as we become more aware, then we can become more empathetic and allow our hearts to be broken for the things that break the heart of God. So I write about this a lot in the first book that I wrote, Social Justice Handbook, of what's the process of moving from apathy, where we don't care about an issue, to advocacy, where we actually are constructively engaged in responding to systemic injustices and trying to make the world a better place. And you talk about, um, I guess, three dimensions of that, a sense of holistic justice and interdisciplinary and intersectional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk yeah. about those terms and how you understand those and what role they play. So holistic is one of my favorite words because I think that it has a snapshot of allowing multiple, even divergent perspectives to be able to influence our understanding of an issue. So, you know, we talk about this, again, I'll use the Middle East as an example. People say all the time when you talk about issues related to Israel or Palestine or the Middle East, do you have a balanced perspective? And I think balanced is not the most constructive word because balanced neglects to acknowledge when there might be power differentials at play. And so holistic means we can have a multi-narrative approach that is sensitive to the multiple Jewish perspectives of Jewish Israelis, of Jewish diasporas, the multiple divergent perspectives of Palestinians, be they Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinians that live in Jerusalem or West Bank Palestinians or Palestinian diaspora. So holistic allows us to um, have multiple contributing factors while also then acknowledging the differences in power that might exist between systems or different actors as it relates to different justice issues. I can't remember the second word that you just said. Interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary. 
So, you know, I am an interdisciplinarian. I have three master's degrees in completely unrelated subjects, one in business, one that's a master's of divinity and a master of arts in bioethics. It is kind of the epitome of defining interdisciplinary, that it is uh, topics that might not seem to relate to one another. Um, but personally, I believe that contribute to each other. And so sometimes we can have individuals who are experts on a particular issue, like the environment, but they might ignore social causes, or they might not be as educated about other considerations of different fields of study or different disciplines. Um, and so, you know, part of what I sought to do in Beyond Hashtag Activism is to provide a book that looks at environmental justice issues, justice issues that relate to politics, justice issues that relate to race, gender. You know, we could talk about the Me Too movement and all of the conversations around gender, gender in the context of the workplace, gender in the context of the church. Uh, and so the book really seeks to look at not only political perspectives, but historical considerations and other disciplines and what they would have to say about those questions of justice. And the third area is intersectionality. Intersectionality. You know, this is a term that I think is so incredibly critical. It reminds me of, have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? Oh, yeah. The idea, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world and it has impact all the way on the other hemispheres. And intersectionality speaks to that, that all of our systems, you know, the, the way that we care for the environment has a disproportionate effect, for example, on people who are living in poverty. Um, the way we respond to the needs of the poor connects to the ways that our economic systems are structured and the way that business, you know, uh, functions. And so intersectionality is that idea that different aspects of justice are interconnected and related to one another. And when you respond to a systemic issue in one area, it can have impact on other areas as well. And so having an intersectional approach or perspective is a way that we can holistically, holistically look at multifaceted um, intersections of relationships between different issues of justice. Well, one of the things that you talk about at the beginning uh, of the book uh, is that there are conflicts uh, amongst us as Christians that are pretty divided uh, substantively. And uh, you mentioned the uh, 2018 uh, statement on social justice and the gospel uh, that was kind of uh, authored by Jonathan MacArthur. Um, and in that, it, it talks about that social justice kind of goes against the core tenets of the gospel. Um, explain their understanding. You know, I think that this goes back to some of the history of Protestantism and evangelicalism within the United States. And I have a whole chapter about that specifically in the book Social Justice Handbook, where when you look at the early 20th century, there was a division in the church where um, really a split of sorts, where you had this growing fundamentalism and conservatism of a certain segment of American Protestants that became known later as evangelicals um, or even fundamentalists who believed that the core 
focus of the gospel is our personal salvation and individual relationship with Christ. And so was, there was this emphasis on personal piety, on behaviors, on purity. You know, and I am someone who believes ardently in salvation through Christ and um, through the power of Christ's death on, and resurrection from the cross. Um, but one of the things we see historically is within the church, there was a division where a number of denominations um, began to focus primarily on the gospel as personal salvation. And on the other side of the spectrum, you had a movement within other denominations or other groups of Christians that began to emphasize what became known to be the social gospel. So you might've heard the name Rauschenbusch uh, was a significant leader in the early 20th century. And these were Christians who felt like the primary purpose of the gospel was responding to the needs of the poor, or how do Christians and the church engage in society? And unfortunately, and I don't mean to make this you know, so black and white, because there are many Christians that believe in both personal salvation and the way we care for the poor and the way we engage in society. But increasingly, there was a division within the church. And I think MacArthur's statement, you know, which I don't have the notes in front of me about to quote him directly, but some of the things he was saying about justice was very much in that vantage point of focusing on personal piety, being critical of the aspect of justice, saying that it's just a liberal paradigm, it's just a liberal perspective, it's not biblical. And in some ways, the book Social Justice Handbook that I wrote was specifically saying, oh my goodness, look at the prophets. Look at the, the words in the Hebrew scriptures. Look at the message of Jesus, his very, very first sermon, you know, which we read about in Luke chapter four, where Jesus says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because I've been anointed for what purpose? To preach good news. And what is the good news? Good news to the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, setting the captives free. And so I would be of the perspective that biblical justice is holistic. It's about personal piety, our relationship with Christ, and the way we engage with our neighbors. Well, you use the, the idea of, of, of spiritual and material mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a part of that. Talk about that a little more. That's right. Um, that is in one of my favorite chapters that I have ever written, um, where I talk about uh, looking at the history of um, African American theology. Howard Thurman was a theologian and leader in the early 20th century, and he had this concept that he talked about that he called strange freedom. And what he was talking about in terms of freedom and liberation was a metaphysical freedom, a, a spiritual freedom, um, something that wasn't material. And it's interesting when you look at what was happening towards Black Americans in the 1930s and the early 20th century, in some ways, the liberation and a, a addressing of racial injustice was so much... Um, so significantly limited at that time frame, you can understand how his theological perspective might focus on, you know, metaphysical freedom or or spiritual freedom. And as you look at Black liberation theology, uh, this chapter, I don't know if you got this from that book, David, but I co-edited a volume called Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice. Yeah. So the chapter that I'm thinking yeah. of is from that book. I was like, is that in Beyond Hashtag Activism? Um, in that chapter, I write about how you see in Black liberation theology and in 
what I would understand as being core evangelical tenets, you see this movement towards material freedom, where we see Martin Luther King Jr. saying, you know, I want to be liberated not only in my soul, but I want to have justice manifested in society. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful and profound um, trajectory that we see as we look at the history of Black theology in the U.S. context. Well, I know white uh, theologians and activists uh, that have done that and that that um, uh, have been forerunners of what you're doing have been uh, Ron Sider, uh, Jim Wallace. Um, what's been your relationship with what they've done? Sure. Well, both of them have been um, mentors to me in different ways. Ron Sider was my dissertation advisor for my doctorate. I have a PhD in the history of American Protestant engagement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and a doctorate of ministry in spiritual formation. And Ron Sider was my dissertation advisor for my doctorate of ministry. So I have um, such a great respect for him. You know, he has done incredible work writing about the power of nonviolence as a tool and as an effective tool toward advocacy. Uh, he, of course, was the founder of Evangelicals for Social Action, which has now become Christians for Social Action um, because of a lot of the contentious issues related to American evangelicalism, uh, particularly, you know, under... Uh, the, over the past several years. Um, and then, of course, Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace was the founder uh, of Sojourners and um, has been a leader, particularly on Christian engagement in the political square. Uh, and he has been a wonderful advocate of me personally and of my work, for which I'm very grateful. Okay. Um, well, then you, you talk uh, about uh, not just advocacy, but a prophetic advocacy. Uh, and what does that mean? Yeah, I, you know, when we look at the example of the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, one of the things that we see is a willingness to declare truth regardless of whether or not it's well received. Um, and so this dynamic of truth telling in the public square is a role of a prophet. And I think, you know, there is a critical, critical role for us in the contemporary age to be prophetic advocates, you know, to be truth tellers in the public square. But I think that there's some context that's important for us to keep in mind as well. Sometimes we hear and the idea that to be an advocate means to be a voice for the voiceless. And I think that perspective actually is not the most helpful because people do have a voice, even if they are experiencing oppression, injustice, you know, or if they are living in poverty. And so I don't think we're called to be a voice for the voiceless. I think that we're called to elevate voices that might not be heard significantly in the public square. Okay. And, and then, so you talk about uh, goals then of advocacy. Um, what are those? Well, I think it depends on the specific issue, but I do identify several different types of advocacy. And um, those are spiritual. We can be spiritual advocates. We're called to pray alongside um, of people and communities. We can be economic advocates, but can be which can be addressing addressing economic systems. We can be legal advocates. There's incredible organizations that look at how 
not all laws are just. You know, I would point people to the incredible work of Equal Just Justice Initiative and the work of Brian Stevenson as an example. You might be familiar with the book uh, or the movie Just Mercy, where he talks about the work that he and others as a part of the Equal Justice Initiative do in response to the prison system. Like that's an example of legal advocacy. There's social advocacy, which can be ve being a voice. You know, you're at the dinner table and someone makes a comment, you know, that's racist or that is you know, insensitive or, or maybe that's ill-informed. And so social advocacy can be speaking out in those types of circumstances. Um, how could I miss this? Our work is based in Washington, DC. Political advocacy is a very specific methodology of the way that we can be advocates. It, well, and, and what I found interesting, uh, you talk about a tension uh, between uh, prophetic witness and pragmatic activism mm. Mm. Uh, that that comes to play in this yes i feel like that's the million dollar question you know people often say how do we have discernment and i do think that there's a spiritual process of seeking and discerning prayer seeking the world wisdom of elders doing advocacy in the context of communities so that we're not alone tapping into the expertise you know of others who've gone before us on the journey I believe that there are certain moments that call for prophetic advocacy. And I think we should always be truthful in the public square, but prophetic advocacy, we sometimes talk about being the tip of the arrow, the going ahead of, you know, where a society or a group of people might not be wanting to hear a certain truth. And so prophetic advocacy can be very outspoken and bold and um, pragmatic advocacy can be paying more attention to the results and using methodologies that sometimes are compromising. It's more like proximate justice. And sometimes prophetic advocacy and practical advocacy can seem very much to be contradicting one another. And I think we need prophets to go ahead of us to create space, um, people that have you know, spiritual gifts of intercession and discernment and are sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit. I hope all of us are, but I think some of us have special gifts in that regard. But pragmatic advocacy is about paying attention to results. And so the example that I often talk about is the example of William Wilberforce in the UK. When the battle to end slavery was at its height, you know, in the United Kingdom, the methodology that ultimately ended slavery was not prophetic advocacy. Now, there were prophets, there were tons of people that were saying this is, you know, slavery is an ill against humankind, that it's a violation of human rights. There were people that were saying that and the ideology that undergirded, you know, the movements of advocacy was certainly prophetic. But what ultimately worked and the first steps in ending the slave trade was um, a shifting in the way that flags, it, it was literally a legal issue where the flags that were used was changed so that slavery was made illegal according to a technicality, not, a te not according to the moral principle. So, and it was successful. I mean, it ended you know, ships taking slaves from Africa to British colonies. And in that regard, that's an example of pragmatic advocacy where the effect of it was, you know, slavery um, no longer being legal on ships, 
you know, and of course, there were laws that came later that were much more holistic and addressed, you know, more of the issues. But at that moment, when that legal issue was addressed, the moral argument was not one within British society. There was incredible division about the moral question of slavery. And so that's an example of where pragmatic advocacy can have an effective result um, where you're not necessarily winning the moral argument. Okay. Let's go back to the idea of, um, like I say, not giving, vo- not speaking for the voiceless, but but to actually elevate their voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, develop what you mean by that, and particularly as as you're looking for people uh, with resources that want to be engaged. Um, how do you how do you uh, help them understand what you mean by? Yeah, elevating voices. Sure. So at Churches for Middle East Peace, which is the organization where I'm the executive director, we say educate, elevate, and advocate. We want to be informed and aware of geopolitical realities. We want to be informed and aware of human rights concerns, of economics concerns, and we want to elevate the voices of those in the Middle East. So in other words, we don't want to be advocating for Israelis and Palestinians or Syrians or Yemenis without elevating their voices and listening ultimately to what they think most needs to be done. And so this is a way, you know, I know you just did a recent podcast conversation on decolonizing worship. A way that we can decolonize our advocacy is to allow our advocacy to be led by the people who are the most affected by the injustices that we're trying to respond to. And so when we talk about elevating voices, Often we have resources or access to resources that people that are experiencing oppression or injustices may not have access to. And so some of the ways that we can be effective advocates are by giving them, is by elevating their voices, giving them the platform, sharing our platform, sharing our resources. Okay. Okay. Well, let's take some of the issues then that you've uh, been talking about. Um, let's, let's begin with poverty. Poverty. Uh, and from your perspective, uh, of a holistic interdisciplinary and intersectional sense of justice, mm. um, how do we, how do we begin to think about and talk about poverty? About poverty. You know, I'm so grateful that in my history, I've had the privilege of serving with some incredible organizations that are committed to alleviating extreme poverty, responding to poverty domestically in the United States. And of course, it looks very differently also around the world. So I've served with Compassion International. I was on staff with World Vision. I now have the great privilege of being on the board of Tear Fund USA, which is this amazing organization that focuses on theology um, and responding to the needs of the poor. And so, you know, I think development is a great um, sector, if you will, or a great pragmatic approach to addressing poverty. And one of the concepts we often talk about in the context of international development is transformational development, is development that's addressing systemic issues. That's not only, you know, you I'm sure have heard the analogies about it's not just about giving a person a fish, it's about teaching them how to fish, but it's not only about teaching them how to fish, it's about if the pond is polluted, you know, addressing the systemic issue of the pond being polluted. 
And, you know, we talk about the different sectors of development from water to livelihoods to um, having access to a home, um, the spiritual uh, health, you know, of individuals and of communities, education being a key aspect of development. And so uh, I think I would really recommend those organizations, Tier Fund, um, Compassion International, World Vision, and then beyond hashtag activism, I talk about the different methodologies. So Compassion International's methodology of addressing global poverty is very, very different than World Vision's. Uh, and I write about that. I write about their different um, ways of working with global communities. Well, yeah, because you, you talk about um, World Vision uh, kind of approaches helping the community to help the child where Compassion International does the opposite of helping the child that then ends up helping the community. That's right. That's a good summary. That's right. <laughs> Develop that a little more. Yeah. So both World Vision and Compassion have historically had, you know, um, at least a component of their work in international development being through child sponsorship. So you pay a monthly, uh, you know, donation and you sponsor a child with the goal of, you know, seeking to respond to that individual child's needs living in poverty, um, but also with the goal of addressing you know, community issues. And just what you said, uh, World Vision's model really looks at water and, you know, these major aspects of development in terms of sectors of development. And um, you said it better than I, David, you know, the, the investing in the community so that then the entire community is elevated and injustices within in the community are addressed so that the child ultimately benefits. Um, whereas Compassion's model is very much about investing in the life of an individual child. And at the beginning of that chapter and beyond hashtag activism, I tell the story of one of the staff members at Compassion who really explained to me, you know, he, um, he comes from Africa and he talks about in the different cultures in different countries, you know, in the continent of Africa about how an individual is such an integral part of a family system that when you help an individual by default you help their entire family system which could be a dozen cousins and you know can be a much larger group of people and so those are very very different methodologies and there's strengths and you know weaknesses to those different um approaches if you will uh, which i write about in that chapter well and it seems to um bring in the intersectionality part that, that, that you're talking about, where knowing the difference in context uh, has an effect. Uh, you know, that, that as you said, the, the African sense of community is different. Uh, and so the effect of, of beginning with the child to have an effect on the community uh, would, would, would play out differently there than it would here. Absolutely. Particularly when, you know, the U.S. context is much more individualistic. Uh, there's a lot more individual autonomy. Family systems look very, very different, you know, here in the U.S. than they would in other parts of the world. One of the, the things that you talk about is the paradox uh, of, of poverty, that it is oppressive, but also redemptive. For anyone that has spent time in communities 
where extreme poverty exists. I think that we witness this. There, I'll tell a story about one of my favorite villages in the world. It's a very small village in rural Upper Egypt, which is south in Egypt, uh, but it's one of the communities off of the Nile, Nile River Delta. It's a little village called Deir Abu Hanis, and the poverty there is so extreme. There's no running water. Um, you know, there might be a toilet facility, you know, for five or six homes that's in between the homes, but really, you know, often that's just a hole in the ground. Um, so hygiene is a concern. In the families that I had the opportunity to visit with, the cooking facilities are in the, you know, kind of basement area or the main area of their one bedroom homes. And that's also where the animals are. So, you know, all of the food and cooking is, you know, in the midst of chickens and, you know, and chickens make a lot of messes. And, uh, you know, so I'm trying to be delicate in the way that I'm describing this picture, David. And yet I've had the opportunity to, to visit this village many times. And on the first time I was there, I didn't speak Arabic at all. And I, I had this whole group of children that just came and wanted to talk to me and they might have a few words of English. And so, you know, there was all, I, I'm talking dozens of children. There's a picture of me kind of with these kids all around. And I didn't even have enough Arabic to, to be able to converse with them. So we started to sing songs and we sang the song, Jesus Loves Me. And they sang it in Arabic and I sang it in English. And the amount of joy and freedom of spirit that they experienced, I learned so much just by spending time with them that they didn't have material wealth, but they had this wealth of spirit um, and this fortitude that just was really, really beautiful and really, really humbling. And then when I visited years later, when I visited, you know, more than once, this same group of children, you know, they're now in their teens and, and I was able to be with them. And so you see this picture of me, you know, the first time I'd ever been to Egypt. And then this picture of me probably 10 years later with these children that are taller than I am. Um, and the things that you learn um, from communities that have material challenges, um, I, I can't say enough about how profound they are. Um, and so it, it's my privilege when I have the opportunity to be with them, not the other way around. And you broaden the concept of poverty uh, to be inclusive of education, like say the basic needs uh, of uh, consumption, uh, those kind of things. Uh, talk about that a little more. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when we talk about material wealth, certainly there are people who have money or don't worry about what food is going to be on the table, you know, for dinner. And yet there's an existence of the poverty of spirit where people still are lonely you know, or people still don't feel like there's a meaning to life or people still struggle. And so I think, you know, going back to what we were talking about in terms of material or existential freedom, that there's something in all of our souls that I believe longs to know God, um, but that can often 
those who experience material deprivation have a richer sense of spirit than people who have, you know, all of their material needs met. Um, you know, a, a, a story or an example of that that I would give is of the inmates, some of the inmates uh, that I've had the privilege to get to know uh, at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. And, you know, this is a men's uh, prison. Um, and most of the inmates there are incarcerated for life. And yet there is this group there's a church within this prison. There's several, several churches and several different religious groups within this prison. But some of the men that I've encountered there, they have no material liberty. They, they are told when to wake up. They're told when to go to sleep. You know, when the bell rings, they have to line up to get counted. You know, they're in prison. They don't have material freedom. They're literally behind bars. And yet they exhibit this spiritual sense of freedom that is some of the most profound um, spiritual strength or depth that I've ever witnessed. Um, and so I, I think sometimes of the times that I've spent in the prison there or in other prisons where you'll go to use a restroom and the sign on the door will say free people, mm. meaning people that are not incarcerated. Mm. And yet in some ways, the deliverance that is experienced by people who have found liberty in Christ is so much more profound. It doesn't matter that they're behind bars because their spirit has been set free. And I don't think that that means we shouldn't pursue material freedom or shouldn't pursue material justice, but I think that's a little bit of what I'm talking about in terms of spiritual poverty, you know, alongside of physical poverty. Okay. Well, you also bring in the, the impact of climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the things that I have been reading about climate change is a lot of the natural disasters that we're witnessing are a direct response, you know, to our pollution is a direct response to our degradation of the environment. So, you know, I'm sure you saw in the news, you know, in the last year or so, the fires that just ravaged Australia or the fires that we have all across the United States or, you know, the fact that temperatures now, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest um, and I commute back and forth between here uh, and Washington, D.C., um, or at least I've been living here since COVID. Um, and one of the things that they say about the Pacific Northwest is no one ever needed an air condition. You know, the, the temperatures are moderate, they're mild. And we had a heat wave this summer where for days it was more than 90 degrees and um, people are dying because of heat, which is one of the direct results. You know, of course, these temperature fluctuations, both increasing and decreasing, uh, are one of the side effects of, of climate change that those are realities that are not only affecting, you know, future generations, but they're affecting people today. And that that's a very, very real issue that we need to be attentive to. How are we being stewards of God's creation and the environment? Well, let's shift then um, to what you have had uh, an immense amount of experience in uh, is the issue of the Middle East. 
help us understand uh, in what way justice uh, is involved in that context. I, that's a great question. We could spend hours and hours talking about it. I don't think that there's any one thread of justice, um, but my primary vocation right now is focused on Middle East peace. And, you know, my academic study is focused specifically on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the organization I lead, which is called Churches for Middle East Peace. So I'd encourage people to check us out, www.cmep.org. We focus on conflicts throughout the Middle East. So in Yemen, for example, there's one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our time happening in Yemen right now. Uh, I just had a meeting this morning that was with executive leaders and church leaders from Lebanon. That Lebanon today is experiencing an economic crisis that is unprecedented in modern times. The statistics are showing that the vast majority of Lebanese families, even middle-class families, are experiencing food insecurity because of inflation. And so, you know, this economic crisis is exacerbating poverty that already existed and children aren't being able to go to school and people don't have access to fuel and there's limits in access to electricity. Um, and so this economic crisis is having a pervasive effect on every aspect, you know, of Lebanese society. We could talk about Egypt. I, I mentioned Deir Abu Hennis, this little village and the extreme poverty in Egypt. Um, and of course, many people are familiar with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is very complicated in terms of its geopolitical history. And yet today, the realities in Israel is that you have more than 8 million people living in Israel, where 20% of the population are Palestinian citizens of Israel, and they live alongside of a Palestinian population in Gaza, that's about 2 million people, and a population in the West Bank, that's about 2.5 million people. And Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza are living under what international law would identify as a military occupation, where they are under the control you know, of the Israeli military. And we could talk, I mean, oh my goodness, David, we could talk for hours and hours about pick the country and pick the conflict and what does a threat of justice look like in that context. Um, so there's lots of things we could talk about. Well, let's let's take a little bit then about uh, because each administration in the United States uh, has to grapple uh, with the America's relationships uh, to what's going on over there, uh, and you have uh, fundamentalist Christians uh, who it's Israel and that's our side. And it will always be. And for America, in some ways, to stay what it needs to be, it needs to stay on Israel's side. Um, but then you have Jimmy Carter coming out and and calling Israel to task. Um, and so, you know, each each president uh, grapples uh, with that context. And and so, in your mind, especially in in what you're trying to do, uh, and what you encourage folks that might want to be themselves involved in this. Uh, how do you go about addressing uh, and being engaged in this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we need a paradigm shift. I think that 
the challenge in U.S. politics and even in the history of U.S. church engagement is that we've been looking at this conflict as whose side are you on? Are you on the side of Israel? Are you on the side of the Jewish people? Or are you on the side of the Palestinians? And so when I talk about a paradigm shift, fundamentally, what's in the best interest of the 80% of the Israeli population that are Jewish and the Israeli citizens who are Palestinian, what's in the best interest of the state of Israel is for their Palestinian neighbors to not be living under military control, to not be living where they don't have access to school or education or economic livelihood. That's ultimately in the best interest of Israel, just as Palestinian liberation is in the best interest of Palestinians and I would argue their Israeli neighbors. And so we've been looking at this like a zero sum game, whose side are you on? And I think to understand a holistic perspective that there's multiple Jewish narratives, multiple Palestinian narratives, multiple perspectives. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the best studied conflicts of our time. It's not that there's not a, a possible geopolitical solution. There are tons of political solutions. The challenges are we haven't had the leadership in place, leadership in the Palestinian Authority, leadership in the Israeli government, leadership in the White House. Um, you know, the last time we had leaders that were really, really serious about peace were Yasser Arafat, uh, Itzhak Rabin, um, and ultimately both won the Nobel Peace Prize. And Itzhak Rabin, you know, the head of Israel, was assassinated. And most people don't know he was assassinated by an Israeli extremist, not by a Palestinian. And so um, there is so much incredible potential for peace. The vast majority of Palestinians, the vast majority of Israelis want to live where their children can have a prosperous future. And they, you know, Israeli mothers don't want their children to go and serve in the Israeli military and to go to war. And Palestinian mothers, you know, want their children to be able to live and to live in freedom. And so there's so much potential for peace and much, much work to be done where our encouragement at Churches for Middle East Peace is for the church to be a constructive actor in pursuing peace. Um, so that's where we say educate, elevate, and advocate um, that we want to engage in a way that prays for peace, but also works for justice. Well, talking to you has always been a delight, is wonderful. Uh, and the resources that you provide us are immensely helpful. Uh, and so I want to thank you for who you are, uh, for what you do. I especially want to thank you for uh, the books that you write uh, mm -hmm. that help uh, us be engaged, help guide us in ways and when we want to be engaged. So thank you for being with me today. That is kind of you to say, David. Thank you for having me. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left 
Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.